Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name, Most High, to declare your faithful love in the morning and your faithfulness at night with a ten-stringed harp and the music of a lyre. For you have made me rejoice, Lord, by what you have done. I will shout for joy because of the works of your hands. How magnificent are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. A stupid person does not know. A fool does not understand this. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be eternally destroyed. But you, Lord, are exalted forever. For indeed, Lord, your enemies, indeed your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. You have lifted up my horn like that of a wild ox. I have been anointed with the finest oil. My eyes look at my enemies when evildoers rise against me. My ears hear them. The righteous thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green, to declare the Lord is just. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Psalm 92 is, is where we're at this afternoon. Um, thanks for being here. I know some of you had a rowboat to get here. Uh, not really. It's Orange County, and I feel like every time it rains, it's like, you know, the apocalypse, and then, like, nothing happens, and that's basically, I feel like, what's happened so far, but the day's not over. Uh, Psalm 92 is about Sabbath. As a matter of fact, if you look at the he chapter heading of uh, in your Bibles, what you'll see is that this is a psalm about Sabbath. In other words, while Psalm 92 doesn't have much to say about how to do the Lord's Day, how to do Sunday, what it does do is give us an idea of, of the condition, the disposition of our hearts when we pursue Sunday, when we pursue Sabbath or the Lord's Day in a way that is good for us and glorifying to the Lord. And so that's sort of why we're looking at Psalm 92. And I think it's important because... Honestly, like we hear about Sabbath and the Lord's Day and a lot of people are like, man, I don't even like, how do we do that? You know, like, is it just about going to church on Sunday? Is it about like totally no work all day long? When does it start? When does it end? What am I allowed to do? What am I supposed to not do? And, and so 92, uh, uh, chapter 92 is going to help us with that. And I think it's important to recognize the early church saw Sunday, every single Sunday, as almost like a national slash religious holiday. They, they took it serious. It was like Sabbath was a very intentional spiritual discipline they didn't lose sight of. Spiritual discipline like prayer and meditation and the reading of God's word and Sabbath. And I think that often... We forget that Sabbath is for us still to this day a spiritual, a spiritual discipline. So we're going to take a look at that. Um, I think the best way to talk about the problem that we have in our day is to start in Greek mythology, which is kind of weird, but the nerds in the room are like, oh, I see you guys. Uh, so whether you're being chained up to a burning wheel, turned into a spider, or having a bird eat out your liver— 
Greek mythology has these very curious ways in which they display the torturing of human beings for their sins against their gods. But I think probably the most uh, haunting in Greek mythology is that of Sisyphus. Uh, for those of you who might remember, Sisyphus is the king of Corinth that cheats death twice. And for cheating death, Zeus punishes him to push a boulder, a gigantic boulder, up a hill for all of eternity. That's what he does in this mythological story. And so just as Sisyphus gets like this boulder to what is the peak of this hill, it slips out from his hands, rolls back down to the bottom, and he starts over again. This is the punishment, eternal punishment of Sisyphus. Why is that in, in a way I think more haunting than any of the other ones? Because I think it speaks, it's, it's, it, there's something about it that resonates with our daily experience in post-modernity. Because in, daily, in our daily experience, we have this assumption that our value and worth comes from what we do, what we accomplish, or what we attain. And because the disposition of our hearts is that our value and worth is in what we do, what we accomplish, and what we attain, we tend to end up having this disposition of constantly needing to work, to earn, over and over and over again. And it seems like it never stops. And I actually think that there's three symptoms. We're going to focus on the last one. Uh, but the three symptoms that are a sign that we are believing this lie, that our value and worth is in what we can do or what we can attain or what we can experience. Symptom number one is what I call the case of the if-onlys, which is like, man, I would be happy in life if only I can graduate. I'd be happy if only I found my spouse, if only I had my career. And then once you have your career, like if only we can just buy our first home. And of course, anybody who's ever owned a home knows that at about year two, somewhere between year two and year four, the if only is kicking again. It's like, if only we had one extra room. If only we had a bigger yard. If only we had that pool. You see, like we have the case of the if onlys, which is, again, like Sisyphus. It's like just when we think we're going to attain satisfaction and joy, we get there only to have it slip out from our hands to start over again. One of the other symptoms is, is the, the condition of a busy life. I've said this before in a previous sermon, which is that it's interesting that when, uh, you know, back in the day when you asked somebody, hey, how's it going? How are you doing? The answer was generally like, oh, yeah, I'm good. Like, things are going well, you know? But nowadays, when you ask somebody how you're doing, what's the most common answer? I'm busy, right? Like, and, and in a way, like, it's true. We're all busier than we ever have been. But it's also important to see how we value busyness. Because in a way, when someone says they're busy, it's like, man, they got stuff going on. Like, they're providing, they're having success, they have a full life. You know what I mean? Like, if somebody answered that question, you're like, hey, man, how are you doing? And, you, and they were like, I, I don't really got much going on right now. You'd be like, what the junk is wrong with Steve? Like, what, what is he, just like a lazy sloth? You know what I mean? We value busyness, and yet busyness leaves us restless and anxious. There's no fulfillment in busy. And then the last thing that is a symptom is how we view rest. 
And here's where we're going to park for a minute because I think Psalm 92 is going to help us discover what God intends for us as he desires for us to rest on this thing that we call Sabbath or the Lord's Day. So the three points that we're going to make is first, we're going to look at a modern view of rest, then a traditional view of rest, and then a gospel view of rest. So point number one, a modern view of rest is that of an efficient worker. Look at Psalm 92, verse 7 again. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be eternally destroyed. A number of years ago, I worked for a global organization, and I worked with the CEO and HR, and our responsibility was to sort of determine how much vacation time we were going to give people. The challenge was that we had, like, people in, like, three different continents, like, eight different countries, so the legal systems were all a little bit different, but it struck me that the CEO's disposition in that was like, look, we need to give them enough time so that they are efficient, so that they don't get burned out because it costs more to replace them than it is to keep them. But we also don't want to give them too much because then they're not as efficient as we want them to be. That was the disposition, his view on vacation. And now when we hear that from like an employer standpoint, we're like, ew, that sounds gross. But the reality is we actually view rest in many ways in that same way. I mean, like, think about, like, grind culture. Like, any self-proclaimed millionaire, any entrepreneur, any self-made man that's got a following on social media would tell you that you need to rest because rest is better for your job. You will be more efficient. And look, in some ways, that's true. Uh, But that cannot be the primary reason in which we rest because of the insidious lie that is there, which is that we were made to work, that our value and worth comes from being a more efficient cog in the social economic will of the industrial revolution. You see, when rest is about efficiency, we never truly rest. We're never truly rested. We never find fulfillment. It's like Sisyphus. We work towards that moment of rest only to feel more and more rest. And what's interesting is that the next response is then, well, then find your worth in your work. And that's where you hear the phrase like the joys in the journey, or it's not about where you're going or how you get there or how Albert Camus put it, the struggle itself towards the height is enough to fill a man's heart. But listen, that is just admitting defeat. Like the joy, the greatest amount of heaven that you could ever experience is to grind it out, to work. I love the way Alan Noble dissects this in his book, Um, I Am Not My Own. Here's how he says it. He looks at what Albert Camus says and he says, life then is an endless arduous, meaningless existence. Also, to be clear, Sisyphus is in Hades. If all society can promise us is a life in Hades pushing a boulder of the responsibility of self-belonging, then it's not much of a promise. You see, the modern view of rest is a means for efficiency, but this leaves us restless and ultimately hopeless, exhausted. The traditional view of rest is simply to do nothing, 
the Greek Stoics thought that like the height of human existence was to like lay themselves on the stairs of the Areopagus and like eat grapes and wax philosophy. And like the, the, the chief the chief life that you could possibly live is to delegate the responsibilities and the burdens of daily life to lower class citizens so that you can sit in like a pool and, and just enjoy life. But at the end of the day, what we discover is that we also don't find fulfillment in this. You know, uh, Kelly and I got a chance to go to the Bad Regaz thermal baths one time. This is in Switzerland. And like, we knew a year in advance that we were going to get to this thing. And the plan, we were going with 20 people. And the plan was to be there like all day from open to close. It was going to be like this. When you Google the thermal baths, basically what they are is like this cathedral with like these arching ceilings and paintings on top of it. And it's like cold baths and hot baths and thermal baths. And you like, you go and you just rest and relax. And there's like this tunnel that you can take to this outdoor bath with this weird pyramid in the middle of it. And you're looking at the Swiss Alps and like the plan was to be there all day long. But you know what happened? All 20 of us by like hour five, it was like, you wanna get out of here? Like we were, we got kind of bored. Why? Maybe because our, our hearts will never be satisfied with self-glory. I love the way G.K. Chesterton approaches this. He has this thought experiment. He says, imagine if you had the option of being either really big or really small. He says, like, for me, Chesterton, he said, I would think that I'd want to be really big first because if I was really big, I would be safe. I'd be able to step over the widest of rivers. I'd be able to wrap my arms around the biggest of mountains. I'd be able to use sand dunes as pillows. But then he realizes the world would grow small and I would become bored. Then he says, what if we chose to be really small? then our backyards would become like this oasis of adventure to discover. We'd be able to ride on the backs of butterflies, he says. He ends it like this. How much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it? You would break out of this tiny and tawdry theater in which your own little plot is always being played. And you would find yourself under a freer sky in a street full of splendid strangers, how much happier you would be, how much more of you there would be if the hammer of of a higher God could smash your small cosmos, scattering the stars like spangles, leaving you in the open, free to look up as well as down. Dude, that's good. I love his view of just like recognizing that we are not a big deal And to try to make ourselves a big deal would leave us unsatisfied. The traditional view of rest is to make ourselves big. But that also is unsatisfying, which leaves us with point three. The gospel view of rest is to rejoice. The answer is not work to rest, but ultimately more of the glory of God. Look at verses four and then 12 through 15 with me. 
for you have made me rejoice, Lord, by what you have done. I will shout for joy because of the works of your hands. How magnificent are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. The righteous thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age, healthy and green to declare the Lord is just. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. I want to say three things about Sabbath. Why we Sabbath, what Sabbath should remind us of, and then how do we go about Sabbath or the Lord's Day? So why do we Sabbath? The first reason is kind of like the no-duh reason, which is we Sabbath simply because the Lord commands it. It is like in his top 10 list of the do's and do nots, right? And if you think about it, like we tend to undervalue that one. Like if, you're, if you had an idea that your friend was like going to rob a bank, you'd probably say something to stop him, right? If you had an idea that someone you know was, was uh, being unfaithful to your spouse, I'd like to think that we're the kind of people that would call that person out. If you find out that someone's lying to you, I get the feeling that you'd want to approach them from something about that. But if someone tells to you, hey, man, I can't make it to church on Sunday because I got some work to catch up on, we're like, oh, yeah, that's cool. That kind of makes sense to me. You know, We might even think of it as a virtue rather than a vice. Now, I'm not trying to put specific legalistic parameters on this. The point more is how do we view Sabbath? Do we take serious God's command for us to rest and delight in him on this unique day of the week? Or is it kind of a throwaway command for us? We also Sabbath because it is in itself an act of worship. Does it restore? Yes. Does it make us more efficient? Absolutely. But that is not the chief reason we rest. We rest for the glory of God. Think about it. God himself rested. Did he rest because he was tired? Did he rest to be more of an efficient God? No. He rested pre-edemic fall so that we would know that rest is for us. And think about this. God's command to Adam to rest was before sin. And so if Adam needed rest before the fall, how much more are we in need of God-glorifying restorative rest in our lives after the fall? We rest because he commands it. We rest because it's good for our souls and glorifying to God. What does Sabbath remind us of? The first thing Sabbath reminds us of is that I am not God. You are not God, which is kind of a no-duh. But look again at verse 4. 
the glory is not in like what the dude does, which is most likely David in this situation. It does not say, I have made me rejoice by the works I have done. I will shout for joy because of the works of my own hands. Look how magnificent my works and my thoughts are. No, it says, for you have made me rejoice, Lord, by what you have done. I will shout for joy because of the works of your hands. How magnificent are your works, Lord? How how profound are your thoughts? You see, like Chesterton pointed out, we don't need more of ourselves. What we are in desperate need of is more of God. The second thing we remind ourselves of in the midst of this kind of rest is that we are limited. We remember our fragility. To be human is to be limited. We cannot carry the weight of the world, much less the weight of our own lives on our shoulders. We are not the heroes of our stories. And we often, too often, torture our own selves with overwork to hide our weaknesses, to hide our limitations, to ignore the shame and guilt that comes from the reality that we are limited, but we don't need to be ashamed of that. That is who we are. The gospel reminds us that you're not enough, and that's okay. That you are in need, and that's okay that we cannot outwork our weaknesses, our sins, that we cannot fulfill our own needs, much less of the needs of the people around us. Do you see that the gospel, that rest, reminds us that we are limited and it's okay to acknowledge our limitations so that instead of depending on ourselves in which we know we will fail, we get to depend on the power of God on the work that he is doing, on the promises that he has made to us. I love the way Augustine puts it. He says, you've made us for ourselves, for yourself, excuse me, the opposite of what Augustine said. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and my heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Just side note, I read Augustine's Confessions recently, and this hits so much harder in the midst of the book, because when we read it, we feel like we're reading it in a way that he wrote it for us. But this is in his book, like this moment of confession, of realization that he is not made for himself, but rather that his rest can only come from resting in God. Okay, so how do we Sabbath? How do we get to this place in which we can delight in the glory of God? First, uh, let's distinguish the difference between Sabbath and the Lord's Day, because if you notice, I've been kind of using those interchangeably. Throughout the Old Testament, Sabbath was celebrated on a Saturday, the seventh day of the week. But what happens at Jesus' resurrection and ascension is that he creates a new covenant, and in that new covenant, a new way in which we interact with him. Uh, This plays itself out in a number of different ways, but in one of those ways is the way we go about Sabbath. Sabbath switches from Saturday to Sunday because that is the day that he resurrects. And for that matter, the early church, I mean, when you read the spiritual disciplines of Sabbath for the early church, it's pretty incredible. Sabbath for them would start Saturday night. 
not Sunday morning when they woke up, but Saturday night. And normally what they would do is they would gather with members of the church and have a feast. It was like a celebratory feast to recognize that they're bringing in, inaugurating this Sabbath day. Uh, And then side note, there's this, so that feast would often last all through the night in celebration, like almost like a party, if you will, into the morning where they would read God's word and pray and gather like this on a Sunday. But side note is that there was this Roman historian that wanted to analyze what the Christians were doing on their Sundays. He was, uh, so there's two, there's plenty of the elder and plenty of the younger, and I always mix them up. They're, it's like uncle and nephew. I'm totally doing that thing right now that old people do, where, where you're like, uh, sorry, Brian. You're like, hey, Brian, who's your mechanic? His name's Steve. His, he was six feet in high school, but 5'10 when he got back from the war. Sorry. That's also how Chris tells stories, by the way. But we love the way you tell stories, Chris. Anyway, one of the Plinies makes this observation about how the Christians went about celebrating Sabbath. And he started, like, accusing them of, like, being drunkards and partying too much. What he didn't understand, they weren't drunkards. What he didn't understand is that they were together delighting in the glory of God. And they did that starting Saturday night all the way until bedtime Sunday. And so the question is, do you delight in the glory of God? Do you delight in the glory of God? Is that a part of your weekly ritual While we ought to do that through all the things that we do, Sunday is set apart specifically to delight in the glory of God. And please notice, I'm not here to be like, this is the right way to do it, and this is the wrong way to do it. How that fleshes itself out in your life is up for you to decide. The point is, whatever your intentional routine is, and it should be an intentional routine, the question is, does it cause you to delight in the glory of God? Is that what Sunday is about? or Saturday night to Sunday night, if that's how you choose to do it. The reason why that's important is because I get the sense that some people do church not for delighting in the glory of God. I get the sense that some people do church, for example, because of its community. And listen, don't get me wrong, like, we have a beautiful community here at King's Cross. I think we know how to love each other well, serve each other well. We delight in each other well. I love that our kids call, like, the other guys uncles and the girls aunts. I love walking around, and I see, like, a mom holding a baby that doesn't belong to her legally. You know what I mean? Like, we do. We do community very well. But... If the reason you attend church, I'll be more specific. If the reason you attend King's Cross is because of community, if that's the primary reason, you're doing it wrong. 
And don't get me wrong, like if you're interested in King's Cross because of its community, that's a great reason to start. But why do we do church? It is to delight in the glory of God. If that is not a part of your routine, man, you're you're missing out on what God has for you. I think one of the other reasons some people do church is for their own self-glory because they want to feel good about themselves because they want things to work out their way. And the problem with that is that then church becomes a place where they have to have like their visual and emotional stimulus like wound up for their own goodness, right? And the problem is that a lot of modern churches, what they end up doing, this is totally not in my notes, so... uh, What a lot of modern churches end up doing is they end up setting up their liturgical practices not to delight in the glory of God, but to make sure man is being entertained, which is ultimately delighting in the glory of man. And the problem with that is as we just went over, we're going to grow bored. We're going to grow bored of ourselves. We're going to grow bored of community. But if you are truly seeking after the glory of God, first off, the scriptures promise us that those who seek after it will find it. And if you are seeking after the glory of God, you're not going to be bored, right? Like what happens to people in the Bible when they experience the glory of God? They tremble, they weep, or they die. The glory of God is anything but boring. And so what are you seeking after? Do you want to experience the glory of God? To close, uh, we're going to focus on the gospel as we should. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, the commandment of Sabbath links the necessity of doing this spiritual discipline of Sabbath with the liberation of God's people from Egypt, what I think is very important to understand the gospel in the idea of this command to Sabbath. Here's how uh, Deuteronomy 5 verse 15 reads, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord you, your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath. Do you see God's people were slaves in Egypt? He, through an incredible process, saves them from Pharaoh. As a slave, they worked to the bone with no end in sight. As a slave, their work was not fulfilling. As a slave, the only rest they got was so that they can be more efficient workers. This is the life of Sisyphus being lived out right now. But God frees his people from Pharaoh. He takes them from slavery to sons, from Egypt to the promised land. And he's telling them, don't forget what I have done for you. I have freed you. Do you see that the slave works for the taskmaster so that the taskmaster could rest? But God has finished the work so that you can rest. Do you see 
that the pharaohs of our lives demand more and more and more for their own glory. But God says it has been done. Rest and delight in who I am. You see, the Exodus story is the shadow of what God is doing perhaps in your life. And what he wants you to do, what he wants is for you to be free from sin, free from living a life where you're trying to justify yourself, free to delight in the glory of God through the work of our savior. And so, yeah, let's do that as a community. Let's do that in God's word and let's do that in his creation. Let's approach Sabbath with intentionality, with a plan and a structure that causes us to slow down, to rest, and to delight in the glory of God. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.